So let's consider the book that we are about to dive into now. Last week we, were, we gave a big overview of the book of... Do you remember? Joshua, okay? So we saw Joshua, we saw these battles, we saw um, the great verse in the middle that said there was rest in the land, and finally the Israelite people experienced true rest. And today we're going to the next stage in the biblical story, not quite the next stage that we have up here, we're still finishing off the section on the land, and that is the book of Judges. Now, if you've read the book of Judges before, you'll realize that the book of Judges is not the prettiest of books, and we're going to have a bit of a look of that today, and we're going to unpack this book of Judges in three um, sermons. I've got the first one today, which is going to give a bit of an overview and, and, and talk about specifically Deborah. And then the next two following this, we'll have Dave will be preaching on the story of Gideon and then the story of Samson. So that's a little bit of a uh, heads up for where we're, we're headed over the next few weeks. And so the sermon I've of, of, of t- called the sermon this morning, Just a Tent Peg and a Hammer. What is it that God can do if all we have is just a tent peg and a hammer? And we'll unpack that as we go through. So to give you a bit of a broad overview of the book of Judges, the first thing I want you to know is that the book of Judges starts bad and ends terrible. Okay? In Joshua 11 verse 23, this is the key verse that I want to remind you of from last, last week, and this is probably one of the key verses in the whole of Joshua, it says, "'So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses.' And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. And we talked about that last week, how that must have been so surreal for them to after years as a nation, as a people, hundreds of years as slaves in Egypt, decades wandering through the wilderness, and then a number of years fighting these battles in the promised land in Canaan, and finally the land had rest from war. However, when we get along to the book of Judges, we get to Judges chapter 2 and verse 1. And it says, Now the angel of the Lord went up to Gilgal to um, Bochum, and he said... Now remember, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joshua as the commander of the Lord's armies. And this is Jesus, okay? This is, this is God coming down and revealing himself. And in this situation, he's, he's giving, got a message for the people of Israel, not just one person, but a whole group of people that are gathered together. And he goes on to say, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. What a promise. The God that we serve is a God who never breaks his covenant with us. Verse 2, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. That was one of the instructions that God had given to them. You shall break down their altars. I don't want you to participate in the idolatry of the Canaanites. That's why I'm getting you to drive them out. And then he says, But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? So here we see, right from the very beginning of the book of Judges, we see these people who were so obedient that had overtaken um, the land driven out the inhabitants, at least a large proportion of them, during the time of Joshua. Joshua has died, and straight away we see the people fall back into dis, 
obedience. So I said, the book of Judges begins bad. Now let's see how it ends. Turn with me across to Judges chapter 19. Now, if you've ever read Judges chapter 19, you'll realize that this is probably one of the ugliest passages in the whole of the Bible. And in fact, the whole book of Judges, if you think the Bible is boring, you've never read the book of Judges. It's messy, it's ugly, there's all sorts of calamities happening, um, but it's certainly not boring. And this is how the book of Judges ends. Now, if you've got your Bibles, I encourage you to turn, this one's not on the screen, Judges chapter 19 and verse 22. And in fact, some of this is is pretty graphic. I'm not going to elaborate on it too much. I'm just simply going to read it through for you to give us a bit of a picture of where the book of Judges is heading. Judges 19, verse 22. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. Now, a bit of background. Just before this, we have a man who has a concubine who's, I guess, kind of like a wife. Um, and, and he has been on this journey and he, he left late in the day, and when he got, he didn't quite make it to his destination, so he's, he's in a different, he's in the land of uh, Gibeah, and, and, he, and he goes, and he's looking for somewhere to stay the night, because he's not in his hometown, and he can't find anywhere to stay, so he stays in the open square, and following that, an old man comes up to him and says, it's too dangerous for you, too dangerous for you to stay in this open square, come along to my house. So the man and his concubine, they go to this house, and in supposed safety until this wild mob shows up. So verse 22, they surrounded the house, beating on the door, and they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, know my brothers, do not act so wickedly since this man has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughters and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. Now, does this remind you of a different story in, say, the book of Genesis? The story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Here we have a people that were so wicked that God sent fire down from heaven to destroy this, this, this nation. And here, this is not this foreign nation, but this is the Benjaminites. This is one of the Israelite towns. And here we see the very things that were taking place in Sodom and Gomorrah, almost the identical scenario taking place in Israel. Let's read on, verse 25. But the men would not listen to him, so the men seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break... They let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning. And when he opened the door of the house, he went out to go on his way. Behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, Get up, Uh, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. This is where things get really ugly. And when he entered his house, he took a knife. So this this woman had died, passed away, and took a knife. And taking hold of the concubine, he divided her limb by limb into 12 pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. 
And all who saw it said, Such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Now, if that story doesn't make you feel uncomfortable, then, then it should. Okay, here we have someone who's abused all night long. To, she dies, and then in order to get the message out, this terrible thing has happened. She's cut into 12 pieces and sent all the way around the, the 12 tribes of Israel. How did this, how did the land of Israel end up in this sort of a situation? How did the land of Israel end up acting so wickedly that they're really just imitating the deeds of Sodom and Gomorrah, whom God had to extinguish because the wickedness was so great? So the story goes from bad and ends terrible. And the reason that the book of Judges presents with us, the reason the land of Israel got so terrible and got so wicked, it, was, it, is the, uh, it is the result of not driving out the Canaanites. And you might be thinking, well, hang on, Joshua did drive out the Canaanites. Well, if you read the end of Joshua, he, he drove out a large amount of the Canaanites, but there were still people there yet to be driven out. And let me give you a summary of the first chapter of Judges. This is what you find in Judges, and you just look on the screen. This is, this is a summary of, 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 of the, the driving out that they did. Um, Judah, okay, they started off going and con- um, conquering the various aspects of the land, but it says they couldn't drive out the Jebusites because they had iron chariots, okay? Then we read about the Benjaminites. It says they did not drive out the Jebusites, and they just lived together. And, and when you read this, there's, it doesn't say... The, the Benjaminites couldn't drive them out. It says they did not drive them out. They just sort of got complacent and they, oh, we're in this land now. It's hard work driving these people out. Let's just live together. We see Manasseh, another tribe, did not drive out the Canaanites, and, but they put them into forced labor. We see Ephraim um, did not drive out the Canaanites, lived together. Zebulun did not drive out the Canaanites, forced labor. Um, Asher did not drive out the Ash. I think about that, right? Asherites lived together. I think I might have made one little mistake there on the screen. Naphtali did not drive out the Canaanites, put them into forced labor. Dan met resistance from the Amorites, and they just sort of stayed away from that part of the land. Ephraim again manages to put those Amorites into forced labor. Can you see a bit of a recurring pattern here? God said, "Drive them completely out of the land." And here, tribe after tribe after tribe either met resistance or they just simply didn't bother finishing the task. And at the end of it, we see them living together. And then they think, oh, let's just put, make them our slaves. And it's almost like a situation in, in Egypt again, but just the reverse. And so we see that, that God's people did not complete the task that he had called them to. Now, the angel of the Lord, when he's given this, this speech to the, um, the Israelites, the fact that they were not being obedient, he goes on to say, so now I say, I will not drive them out from before you. Remember, the, before there was a promise, always a promise that, that God would go before them and drive out the Israelites. And here it says, it says, I will not drive them out before you, 
But they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. God's deliverance was not going to be complete because the obedience of the people was not complete. And in fact, they very quickly went into rebellion. And so God says, these people who are now living amongst you, they're going to become a snare to you like a thorn in your side. Judges chapter 2 verse 11. Turn with me in your Bibles to Judges chapter 2. So before this, we see the death of Joshua. And here we see just an example of how these people became a thorn in the sides of the Israelites. Judges 2 verse 11 says, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. Here we see, right from the beginning, we see Israel suddenly going into idolatry. Okay? Verse 12, And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, they went after, uh, went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. So they just start following, they just start imitating, they just start copying the various nations in their midst. Verse 13, They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And it says, And he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. Now notice the language there. It says God gave them over. And what's sort of implied in that is that before that, God was there in a very protective way. He was protecting them from the enemies. He was protecting them from harm. But here, by their actions, they were telling God, God, we don't actually want you. Eventually, God had to honor their decisions and say, if you don't want me in your life, that I'm going to give you up to the decisions that you've made. I'm going to give you up to these, these surrounding nations and they will come and they will plunder, plunder you. And that's the story of, of the beginning of the book of Judges, of a people who, who didn't fulfill what God had called them to do, and as a result, very quickly they plunge into doing the very things that the people were doing in the land prior to them arriving there in the Promised Land. And so as I think about this, now there's five take-home messages that we're going to have today, and, and this is the first one. This is, this is the lesson that immediately jumps out to me from the book of Judges, and that is that we need to serve God with completeness. I think often in our lives we, we get complacent with half, doing like a half-hearted serving of God. We serve God in this area, and we serve God in this area, and we serve God in this area, and then we think, you know what, maybe that's enough. Maybe we'll just, won't, we'll just keep this area to ourselves. We won't quite follow God all the way over in this area. And so we need to serve God with completeness. And the reason is that God knows what will be, bring us the best um, sort of life. He knows um, how to satisfy the desires of our hearts. And so he gives us instructions that will lead us in order to take hold of, of, of that that he has for our lives. But so often we fall short of that because we, we don't serve him completely. The second take-home message is that we need to serve God with trust. Now, a couple of sermons ago, 
David got up here and gave you, I think it was 10 points about trying to wrap our minds around with the whole idea of God commanding his people to go into the promised land and just drive out all the inhabitants. And often they were killing the people who were there. And, um, and when, from a modern reader, when we read that, we think, how does that fit in with a God of love? How do we wrap our minds around serving a God who would command such a thing? That seems like a hard instruction. It's a tough instruction. It's a scary instruction. It seems like potentially a mean instruction that God has given them. And the truth is, for the, for the Israelites, it probably seemed just the same. When God instructed them to go in and to drive these people out of the land, they probably wrestled with the same problem. Did God, why would God ask us to do such a thing? Why would God ask us to go and drive out these, these families and the children and, and the women and, 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 and go in there with the swords and... and And why would God ask this of us? But the reason God wanted them to do that, we can find just simply by reading the book of Judges, and that saying when they don't do that, we see the sort of atrocities and wickedness take place across the land, like we just read about in Judges chapter 19. So when God gives us instructions, even if they sometimes seem strange, we don't really understand them, we need to remember that God knows best. God knows the impact that those instructions will make on us and on our families and on us in the long term. So we need to serve God with completeness and serve God with trust. Now in the midst of this, there's a verse that stood out to me as I read through the book of Judges. Just like in Joshua, the land had rest from war. There's a, there's a verse that stood out to me in the book of Judges and we find it in um, Judges chapter 10 and verse 16. I've got it up here on the screen. Now, when you read through Judges, it's, it's this, just this repeated cycle that takes place. We see that, that Israel, the Israelites, they, they, they compromise, they go into idolatry, they rebel against God, God gives them up to their decisions, um, the surrounding nations come and they start plundering them, they start attacking them, and eventually Israel keeps coming to this point where they call out to God and they say, God, help us, help us. And in Judges chapter 10, God says to him, he says, why are you calling out to me? Why don't you go and call out to those gods that you're wanting to serve? Why don't you go and do that? But the people continue to call out to God, and, they, and this is what we see in Judges chapter 10, verse 16. I love this verse because it reveals such an amazing picture of the love that God has for us. It says, So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And says, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Have you ever been struggling with impatience? What is it like? I remember as I was doing this, I was trying to think of a time in my life when I had to struggle with being patient. And the story that came to my mind of my own experience was um, my, when I experienced the most flights missed that I've ever missed in my entire life, and that is five. Five is my personal record for the most aeroplane, aeroplanes missed in a row. And I was over in, in, the, in the Solomon Islands, and we'd been there for two weeks, and we'd been doing some um, mission work over there. And by the end of it, we were exhausted. We were worn out. And, and, and for anyone who's been, I'm sure Wayne and, and people have been over to some of these, on these trips, you get to the end of a trip like that, and you just can't wait to get home. 
And so we, we packed all our gear up that morning. We said goodbye to everyone, and we, we got in the car. We went up this little forest track up to, um, up to the Alki airport. And we got there, and we, we got out of the plane. We went to hop in the plane, and they said, Oh, sorry, you're on the waiting list. Now, we had booked these flights, but for some reason... I think someone, one of their friends had talked to the travel agent and he just bumped, sort of bumped us off the flight as kind of happens out there in the island sometimes. And we're now on the waiting list. And so we're like, what? what do you mean we're on the waiting list? So we waved goodbye to that plane as it went past, hopped back in the car, drove back to the little village where we were and said hello to everyone again. And we're like, man, we just want to get home. And so the next morning we organized to have this flight redirected to come by and pick us up. So we went there in the morning ready to hop on this plane, and the weather was too bad and the plane couldn't come. It's like, man, what's gonna, how are we going to do this? So we were really eager to get home at this point. And then so we, we organized to have this plane chartered to come and pick us up, and there was another person who chartered to come out and we we're going to get on the return leg. And we're there and we're waiting and we're waiting and we're waiting. And then we're like, where is it? So we ring them up and the, the, air, the pilot was literally in the plane waiting for this other group to pay for the, the chartered flight out, but they didn't. And so they'd cancel that. And we're like, oh man, we're just so eager to get home. So we hop back in the car, and we make the trip back to, um, down to the village. We said hello to everyone again. And then the next day, we, we finally we got onto this plane. And by this stage, we missed our flight back to Brisbane and our flight down to Sydney. So we missed a whole bunch of planes. But when we eventually had an opportunity to actually get on a plane, like our patience was wearing thin, and we were just like, jumped on that and we just went and we wanted to get home as quick as we possibly can. But for that time of waiting, I just remember the impatience that we had was just sort of messing with us and we were just so eager to get back. And that's the picture that I have of God when we read through the book of Judges. That God's, that the Israelites are rebelling against God and God is forced to withdraw his protection from them. But as he sees them in misery, as he sees them suffering, as he sees them being plundered, as he sees them being raided, his patience is wearing thin, and he's impatient with it. And as soon as God has an opportunity to jump in there and to rescue his people, he goes for it. And so we see that um, the book of Judges is the story of an impatient God who is always waiting to jump in and to rescue his people. Now, as you go through the book of Judges, God's impatience is manifest through the various judges that are sent um, to the people. So I've got here the judges in Judges. The reason the book is called Judges is because there's these people that were called judges. They're basically deliverers of, Egypt, of, of, deliverers of the, the Israelites um, from the hands of their enemies. And God would send someone like Othniel or Ehud or Gideon and he would fill them with his spirit and they would go in there and they would deliver the people from their oppressors. And there's nine of them. And as I said, we're going to be looking at Deborah, Gideon and Samson today and over the next two, two weeks. So there's the book of Judges in a view and there's the two things we looked at so far. So let's now focus in on our story. So we'll just go back here. Um, Chapter 4 of Judges. Turn me in your Bible to chapter, chapter 4. And it begins with, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. Now Ehud, 
he was an interesting character. If you ever have time, go and read the story of Ehud. It finishes with him pludging, pludging a sword through the belly of this fat king, and the, belly, and the fat comes over and covers up the sword and the handle. It's a really like graphic, interesting sort of story. But after that, there was 80 years of rest in the land again. But eventually Ehud dies, and straight away the people do what is evil in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 2. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of the army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagoyim. Um, and then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. So here we see that for 20 years the people are being oppressed by this man by the name of Sisera. And the way that he oppressed them was with these 900 um, iron chariots. And maybe you can sort of picture in your mind um, the tanks that we have today. Maybe that's sort of a modern equivalent. Imagine if you had these people coming in on tanks that you just could not defeat and were just harassing you, harassing you, harassing you for 20 long years. That's the situation that we find these people in. Now, here we encounter a woman by the name of Deborah, and we find her in verse 4. It says, Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came to her for judgment. Now one of the things that immediately stands out to me about this judge is this judge is a woman. Now you might be thinking, for all the the women out there, when we've been going through these stories and the great leaders of the Bible, we have man after man after man. There's there's Noah and there's Abraham and there's um, there's Jacob and there's Moses and there's Joshua and all these these men. You think where are the women? Well, here we have an example of a woman who God called and God gifted to a position of leadership in in the land of Israel. This woman was a prophetess, okay? So she received divine um, revelations from God for the people. And also, she wasn't just a spiritual leader, but she was, she was one of the judges. People would come to her with, with the problems that she had, and she would decide between those cases. So she's in, in, in some ways sort of is judging and ruling in, in those situations in this land. Now, what she does, she calls a man by the name of Barak, okay? Verse 6, it says... She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kedish Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand." So what do we learn about Barak from this little bit, these couple of verses? Firstly, um, she says, go and gather 10,000 of your men. Okay? The fact that it says your men shows us that Barak was in some way a leader amongst the Israelites here. Most likely some sort of military leader. He is someone who would have been trained in the art of war. He is someone who, if there was anyone who was to go and face these, um, these oppressors, the enemy... He was the man, and God called him because God had equipped him and had given him the skills to go and defeat them. And she promised that with that, that God would bring a great victory. Now let's look at Barak's response. 
Okay, verse 8. Barak said to her, speaking to Deborah, If you will go with me, I will go. Um, But if you will not go with me, I will not go. What do we notice about this response? Is it embracing the challenge that God has given him? Or is there a level of conditionality there? Here we see an example of someone who will serve God under certain circumstances. Okay? Here's someone who says, okay, I will, I will do this task God has called me if... Dot, dot, dot. Now, why did he ask this? Now, firstly, you can imagine that he didn't really want to do it because I wouldn't want to personally go up against 900 chariots of iron and who knows, you could end up dying. Okay? All sorts, and these people have been pressing them for 20 years. They've been unable to deliver them. And so he's just firstly hesitant because he doesn't want to go and maybe he doesn't quite believe that God's going to give him the victory. And so he says, all right, Deborah, if you really believe that God can give me this victory, I want you to come as well. And Deborah, this woman, says, all right, I'll go with you, with the armies, and let's go together to defeat these people. Now, because of this hesitancy, God's gives a message to her through to him through Deborah and this is what's going to happen as a result of him not embracing the challenge in its fullness and we find this in verse 9 it says and she said i will surely go with you nevertheless the road on which you are going to going will not lead to your glory for the lord will sell sisera into the hand of a woman then deborah arose and went with barak to kedesh so Deborah says, okay, we'll go with you. We can make this, 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 have this great victory, but the glory is going to go to a woman. Now, what's wrong with that? Now, in those times, women didn't have the same place in society as, as they do today. And an example of, of the shame that may have been a, associated with this, we find in Judges chapter 9. And here we see one of the most bizarre circumstances. We find um, Abimelech, who was one of the self-proclaimed um, kings in, in, in Israel. And it says, And Abimelech, this is later in Judges, Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. There's so many women in the book of Judges that are just like taking their stand. And what was, um, what was Abimelech's response? Verse 34, it says, And he called quickly to the young man, his armor-bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, A woman killed him. And his young man thrust him through, and he died. So here we have someone who's still alive, but just in case he dies from this woman who's thrown a stone at him, he says, Thrust me through with the sword. I don't want to die from the hands of a woman. And here we see um, Barak, God says, Your gl- the glory will not go to you, but the glory will go to a woman. The take-home message that we get from the call of Barak is that we need to serve God without conditions. And I think so often we do this in our own lives. God calls us to something and we say, we'll do that if, God, you do this in my life. Or I will serve you if you 
look after my family in this way. Or I will not work on the Sabbath if you do this, 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 and this. And we come to God with, with all these conditions and all these ifs. But God doesn't want us to come to Him with ifs. God wants us to serve Him without conditions. Let's continue on. Verse 10. So here we see Barak, he goes to, to live out the task that God has called him to. It says, And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kedesh, and 10,000 men went up with him at his heels, and Deborah went up with them. Here's the mighty army that had gathered to go and face those chariots. Verse 11. Now Heba the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendant of Hobad, the father-in-law of Moses, and pitched his tent as far away as the oak of Zanonim, which is near Kedesh. Now verse 11, you're like, what is that doing there? This random little detail about some family who was a descendant of, of Moses' father-in-law, who's now living on the outskirts of Israel, near where this battle is taking place. Just keep that in your mind. That's going to come back to that. That's going to become important. Verse 12. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Harasheth, Hagoyim, to the river Kishon. Now notice they went to the river Kishon. Now that's going to be really important as we go through. God said to, to Barak, go and meet them at the river Kishon, and this is where the battle ends up taking place. And you'll see why that's so important shortly. So here comes Sisera, and I can just imagine for 20 years, no one has been able to stand up against Sisera. But here he comes with his chariots, and again, he's probably just thinking, what do these Israelites think they're going to do? They're going to rebel against me? They think that those men can stand up against these tanks, these iron chariots that we've got? Verse 14. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is a day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him, and the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. Seems pretty simple, doesn't it? They go out against these chariots and it says, The Lord routed Sisera and his chariots of, of iron. How did the Lord do that? Well, we doesn't, it doesn't actually tell us what happened here, but we get a couple of clues when we read through a couple of verses in chapter 5. Okay? At the end of this, after this great battle, we see Barak and Deborah, they decide to write a song together, which is kind of sweet. And they, they write these lyrics, and it retells this great battle that, that happened. And as they retell the story, it gives us a couple of clues about the way and the manner in which how God actually... Um, got this great victory on that day. And the first verse we'll read is chapter 5 and verse 4. And I just love the imagery and the, and the, um, the poetry that is being used here. It says, Lord, when you went out from, from Seir, from Seir um, when you marched from the region of Edom, so here it's, it's depicting the Lord himself marching before the, the people of, of Israel, going before them. When you marched out, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped with water. Now what significance does that make? That there's this, the, the heavens are pouring down this rain. The heavens are, uh, uh, it, um, drops of water are filling the, the land. What does that have to do? 
We'll jump across to verse 19. Verse 19, it says, The kings came, they fought, they fought with the kings of Canaan at Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They got no spoils of silver, meaning they came with such eagerness, ready to take over and to get the spoils from the armies of Barak, but they went home with no spoils. Verse 20, from heaven the stars fought, meaning um, there was some sort of supernatural fighting that was going on. Um, God was coming out and he was doing something supernatural to defeat them. And verse 21, it says, the torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon, march on my soul with might. Now at this time of the year, the Kishon River would have been just like a, a small little brook a little stream that went through. And you can just imagine on the sides of there being this flat land where, where um, Sister and his armies could have got their chariots and they could have just rode on in to the, to the armies of, of Barak. But here, there seems to be, it's almost like there's this flash flood that happens, this great torrent. The, the river seems to suddenly be in flood in some sort of a supernatural way. And it's very similar, in fact, to the story of the Red Sea, where the, the sea was parted, and as the chariots of Egypt are going through, suddenly their wheels start to clog up, and, 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 and they're not getting any, any speed to go through, and the water's coming, and they, and they um, destroy them. Well, here we see that there's a great torrent of water that's, that's supernaturally going down through the river Kishon. And what is the result of this? Let's go back to chapter 4. Verse 17, it says, But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael. Question, why would someone who has a chariot of iron flee on foot? Maybe this, this land that they were going through had turned into a bit of a bog hole, a muddy mess, and those chariots, which were once such an advantage to them, suddenly are no longer that sort of an advantage. And suddenly we see Sisera and his army are suddenly outnumbered. They always were outnumbered, but here they had, before they had this, this um, they had the chariots on their side, but here we see suddenly that the chariots aren't an advantage to them anymore. And, and Barak and his armies are able to get a great victory. And so we see Sisera leaves his chariot and he's running away on foot. And he comes to the tent of Jael. Now before we get to the very last part of this story, the fourth take-home message is this. Serve God with the details. God called Barak to go and meet this army and meet them down at the river Kishon. Now what would have happened if Barak had have said, you know what, I think a more strategic location would be to meet them at the great plain of some other area of Israel. What would have happened? Would it have been that God would not have worked this great miracle? God's details are there for reasons. We might not know all the reasons for those, but we need to serve God with the details. And when I think of this, I think of stories like Jericho, which we briefly talked about last week. In Jericho, God told Israelites to march around the walls of Jericho for how many days? 
seven days, what would have happened if they said, you know what, let's just march around for six days? It's just details. We're still doing basically the same thing. What about Moses when, he, when God said, Moses, I want you to speak to the rock. Oh, I'll just strike the rock. It's just details. There's a reason for God's details, and God wants us to serve him with the details as well. So let's go to Sisera. He's fleeing on foot. He comes to the tent of Jael, and here we see an interesting little thing take place. Verse 17, it says, But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heba the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heba the Kenite. So, so this woman Jael is, a, is, a, is a, from this group of people who there's peace between Sisera and them. And so he thinks safety. But if you remember that little verse that seemed kind of random back in verse 11, these people were the descendants of Moses' father-in-law. So there's kind of a bit of a double allegiance going on here. There's peace with them and Sisera, but really they're connected to the Israelites. Uh, Verse 18. Then Jael came and said to Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside into her, to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. Kind of cool imagery there. It's like this, Jael's like mothering this poor military commander who's, who's fleeing for his life. He's scared, and she's coming to the tent. I'll put a rug over you. We'll look after you. Verse 19, and he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink. I am thirsty. She says, I'll do more than that. Um, so she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and, and covered him. So here we see Sisera, this mighty commander, has been fleeing on foot. He's now rugged up. He's got his little, um, little bag of, this, of skin, or skin bag of, of milk there. He's had a nice little a drink. And from the big day, he goes and he nods off to sleep. What's going to happen in the rest of the story? Verse Verse 20, well, just before he went to sleep, it says, And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. And she says, All right, we'll do that. So he goes off, and she goes to sleep. Verse 21, But Jael, the wife of Heba, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep. Now, how would it have been to do that? You just sort of imagine, like, remember this, if he, if he had woken up when she's like mid about to hit that nail, it would have been game over. This is a, this is a man who's trained in war. This is a man who could have easily overpowered jail. And, and here she comes up, softly, slowly, and she picks up that tent peg, carefully not to wake him, rests on his temple and just smashes it into the ground. Pretty gruesome sort of, a, sort of a story here, isn't it? And then, to just finish off the story, we see along comes Barak, chasing down Sisera. Um, verse 22, And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into the tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. What's the final message 
that we have for our take-home messages this morning. And that is this. In God's eyes, your availability is more important than your ability. We'll just jump ahead to the... Here it is. Serve God with what you have. This great victory that came with the death of Sisera, that should have been Barak's victory, shouldn't it? He was the one who had the military training. He was the one who had been trained in war. He was the one that God had gifted with these great gifts in order to bring this victory for the people of Israel. But who got it? A woman who wasn't really an Israelite, living on the fringes of, of the land. What skills did she have? Well, she knew how to put up a tent. Okay, She knew how to drive a, a nail into the ground with a, with a mallet. And God said, all right, if Sister is unwilling to do it, I'll use this woman and I will use the abilities that she has, whatever they might be, and I will win this great victory. Serve God with what you have. And as I was reading through this, it reminded me of a, of a little illustration that Pastor Daniel used. I think it was last year. He was up here. And when he used it, some of you might remember it, um, it really spoke to me. So I thought I'd just quickly share with, it, with you again. And that is the story of Dwight L. Moody. Now, Dwight L. Moody was one of the, um, the great evangelists of the 19th century. Some people think that he actually, um, in his lifetime, he led a million people to Jesus. Okay, so this is a great worker for God. This is a man who, who did great, incredible things for God. But an interesting thing about Dwight L. Moody was he only had about a fifth grade education. He couldn't spell, and his grammar was really terrible. And in his early days, he had a... Um, he, this is just when he was just starting out in preaching. He hired this church hall, and it, was, it, it filled up. People had come to listen to him. And someone came up to Dwight L. Moody and said, you really need to realize your limitations. I don't think you should attempt to speak because your grammar, it's not very good. Okay? That would, now, any advice, if someone's about to preach, probably don't say that to them before, before, they, before they get up. But he said, you make many mistakes in grammar. Who do you think you are to do this task? And Dwight L. Moody said, I know I make many mistakes, and I lack many great things, but I'm doing the best with what I've got. And at the end of that, Dwight L. Moody looked at this man and said, he paused and looked at him and said, you have plenty of grammar. What are you doing with that for the master? In other words, he's saying, who do you think you are getting up here to preach? You've only got a little bit of grammar. A little bit of skills in this sort of thing. But he looks back and says, you've got all the grammar in the world, but what are you doing with it? I'm doing everything I can with a little bit that I have. And he went on to say later in his life, he said, I know perfectly well that wherever I go and preach, there are many better preachers than I am. All I can say about it is that God uses me. In God's eyes, availability is more important than ability. We need to serve God with completeness. We need to serve God with trust that He knows what's, what's best for us. We need to serve God without conditions. We need to serve God with the details as well as the large picture. 
and we need to serve God with what we have. And maybe someone here in this audience today is a barrack, someone who has been gifted with incredible skills, um, great talents, but your obedience to God, your serving of God is partial. It's not complete. It's, it's with hesitancy. You serve God with excuses. If God and with conditions. If that's you today, I encourage you to put that aside and say, God, I'm going to serve you with everything. I'm going to serve you in completeness. And maybe there's someone else in here who is a jail. Someone who thinks, what can I do for God? All I know how to do is put up tents. My message for you today is that, or in the, in the, in the book, in the story of, of, of Deborah, is God, will, God can use someone who puts, just puts tents up. In fact, God can use those skills to do things that no one ever would have expected. And so my challenge for all of us, including myself, is to whatever we have, let's use it for the glory of God. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, Lord, we, in our lives, so often we serve you imperfectly. We neglect the details. We, we don't serve you to completion. Lord, we sometimes just give you all sorts of excuses, Father, but we thank you for your forgiveness. And Father, this week, Lord, help us to be like jail, Lord. Lord, and to look at what we have, what you've given us. And even if it's just a tent peg and a hammer, Lord, may you help us to really believe that with just a a tent peg and a hammer that we can do great things for you, Lord. Lord, every one of us here has gifts that you've given us, Lord. And just, Lord, we pray that you'll help us to be the people you've called us to be. Help us, give us a boldness to step out in faith. Give us courage. Give us determination, Lord. Give us thoroughness, Lord, and and help us to understand the tasks that you have before us. Be with us as we go on into our week, we pray in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.